As I said, it's a delight to be with you all again. Um, one of the neat things about being uh, a guest preacher is that you can kind of pick what you preach on. And what I mentioned earlier uh, is very true, that over uh, more than 25 years of ministry, the, the chief issue, the chief problem that most of the people that I encounter are dealing with is not that they're addicted to something, not that they have relational issues, not that uh, they find it difficult to read the Bible, not that they find it difficult to pray, uh, not that they're introverts or extroverts. The, the big problem is that people don't know who God is and how much He loves them. And so it, it has been a burden of mine to, to communicate to people in various uh, ministry venues that I've been in how much they are loved and, and what it means that God is a God who loves them. And so uh, today I'm going to be preaching on a passage which is familiar to many of us. Uh, parts of it are... are Verses that I'm sure that at some point in your life as a Christian, you've not only heard but memorized and shared with other people. Uh, at a minimum, uh, you have probably watched some sporting event where someone in the end zone or behind the, uh, the field goal net or something like that is holding up the John 3.16 sign. Um, so, you know, this, this is one of those passages that everyone in the world has had some exposure to. And I, I think that there's some danger in, in preaching on a familiar passage because it is so well-known, we, we tend to gloss over it and, and not really plumb its depths. And so I encourage you as I, as I read from John chapter 3 to listen with attentive ears and with hearts uh, that are ready to, to be refreshed with this message of how much God loves us. And so, uh, today's passage is John 3, verses 1 through 21. It begins on page 887 in your uh, pew Bible and carries over onto the following page. Let's pay attention to the reading of God's Word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that what may be clearly so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here is the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We know that it is inerrant, that it is perfect, and that uh, you have something that you want us to know personally uh, from our time in the word this morning. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would write your word on our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to hear you uh, afresh this morning. And Lord, I I pray for myself. I am a sinful man uh, with a sinful tongue. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, make perfect my words for your purposes, that your people might be built up in Christ. All this we ask in Jesus' name. So there's much that we can glean from this part of God's Word. Let's jump right in uh, with a couple of um, comments moving into this. One is that um, point one is going to be much longer than points two and three. So uh, after about 10 or 15 minutes, when we're still on point one, don't get anxious because points two and three are much shorter. Um, So that's one thing. The second thing is, we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 1 through 16. I I read the entire passage just for context, but uh, most of what I'm talking about today is uh, the first two-thirds of the passage. So, point one. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, there there are three points. I should have told you that. Um, Birth, death, and life. Birth, death, and life. So, point one, birth. So, in this passage, we see an exchange between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Uh, and Nicodemus is a, a name that you've probably uh, encountered before. Uh, if you've read this passage, you know about Nicodemus. He is mentioned a few other times in John's Gospel. Uh, and does anyone here watch the TV show The Chosen? Okay, a few of you. So, if you've watched... Uh, for those of you who don't know, by the way, The Chosen is... I shouldn't even call it a TV show. It's an app-based series that uh, tells the story of the Gospels through the eyes of the disciples. So uh, Nicodemus uh, was a main character in the first season of The Chosen. Um, But what what do we know about Nicodemus? Let's look at what we see in what we just read. Uh, there's, there's what we just uh, saw in Scripture, and some of those things are this. He's identified in verse 1 as both a Pharisee and as a leader of the Jews. So this is a, a bit of a rabbit trail, but a, a necessary one, and hopefully you'll see that in a moment. When, when we talk about Pharisees, we often think that uh, to be a Pharisee is uh, synonymous with being a rabbi, that it, it's synonymous with being a teacher of the law. And many... Pharisees were rabbis or teachers of the law, but the Pharisees, strictly speaking, were not a religious order. They were a more of a political order. That is to say that Pharisees were not a denomination of Judaism. It was more akin to uh, being a member of a particular political party. But as I said a moment ago, that's not to say that Pharisees weren't religious. As a matter of fact, they were intensely religious. Uh, Religious to the point where they were criticized many, many times by both John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, They had a strict adherence to the Mosaic Law. Uh, And Jesus and John uh, criticized them for following the law very, very strictly, while at the same time being ignorant of the larger meaning of the law that makes us aware of our need of the grace of God, made complete through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, 
This is what Jesus tells the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 42. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And that's quite an indictment uh, against the religious leaders who believed that law-keeping was their means of salvation. Jesus has told them that they've missed the entire point of their religious experience. He tells them that they're spiritually dead and, and stubbornly uh, refuse to come to Jesus, the only true source of life. He says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now that exchange in John 5 very likely happened after the events that we consider today. Uh, and just to say that not all of the events in the Gospel of John are uh, laid out in, in linear order. Um, but likely the, the statement in John 5 happened after what we read in John 3. But I can't help but, uh, but think that the Holy Spirit had placed that very question into Nicodemus's heart in order to lead him to Jesus on the night that we read about in our passage today. What, what did he place on Nicodemus's heart? That there was something missing in his religious experience. That there was a, a, a big part of his understanding of who God was and what God wanted that was missing. So, Getting back to what else we know about Nicodemus, we know that he continues to publicly support Jesus, and, and we know that because at two other points in John, uh, we see how he uh, identified with Jesus uh, over the next couple of years. First, uh, Nicodemus defends Jesus in a debate with his fellow Pharisees, that's recorded in John chapter 7. And then Nicodemus helps his fellow Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea, take Jesus' body down from the cross and bury it, as John records in chapter 19. So those are the things that we know about Nicodemus. But we can also infer some things from the passage about Nicodemus and about um, what he thought. One thing we can infer from Nicodemus' continued involvement in the Gospel account uh, and from his probable continuing proximity to Jesus and his ministry is that, is that rather at some point he became a follower of Christ. So we can, we can assume at some point Nicodemus became a Christian. Though there's no biblical statement to corroborate this, early Christian tradition holds that Nicodemus came to faith in Jesus. And I think that the circumstantial evidence that we see in the passage today bears that out. A second thing that we can infer from Nicodemus' own words in verse 2 is that he has been uh, watching Jesus. He's been present for Jesus' uh, uh, teaching. He's been present to see Jesus' signs. Uh, as a matter of fact, he says that uh, in, uh, in verse 2. He says, you know, these signs that you have done can only be done by someone who is sent by God. And what are some of those signs? We, we read about them in John chapter 2. Uh, if you look up at the, a couple paragraphs above our passage today, we know that Jesus drove the merchants and the money changers out of the temple, and he performed other signs that, that aren't spelled out, but, but other signs in the city. So whether Nicodemus witnessed those events firsthand or simply heard about them, they appear to be the reason that prompted him to seek Jesus out in the first place. As he says in verse 2, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then comes Jesus' response in verse 3. So, uh, keep in mind that Nicodemus is not asked a question. He, he has said no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Think about that for a moment. Does, does Jesus' response 
to Nicodemus at this point seem just a little bit unusual? Does it, it seem like Jesus is talking about something different than Nicodemus was? One, like Jesus answers uh, something that Nicodemus doesn't seem to be asking. It's kind of like one person saying the Sixers should trade Ben Simmons. And uh, the person whom they're talking to responds with, the key to a long and healthy life is to not eat the potato salad that's been sitting in the sun. <laughs> those, those two things have nothing to do with one another, and that's the way it seems uh, with Jesus' response to Nicodemus. But we, we know that uh, th there is something that Jesus intends to address by his uh, seemingly uh, unusual response. And here's what I think. I think that Nicodemus is actually asking, in a, in a very roundabout way, a, a very kind of uh, uh, timid way, who Jesus really is. He wants him to come out and say, yeah, I am the Messiah, or I'm a prophet, or, or I'm someone else sent by God. The signs to which Nicodemus refers have him wondering, are you a teacher come from God, or are you something more? And Jesus responds to that inferred question by saying, the only way for you to understand the answer to that question is to be born again. So he says, there is no way for you to understand who I am without being born again. It won't make sense. Now, here's that phrase, born again. It's, it's a term that uh, we, we hear over and over and over again in different parts of Christian life. What, what does it even mean to be born again? Nicodemus doesn't know. And so in verse 4, he asks for clarification. Jesus, tell me what you mean in a way that I can understand. And so Jesus does. He refers to a passage of Scripture with which Nicodemus would have surely been familiar. He says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does that refer to? It's, it's likely that what Jesus is referring to here is a promise of restoration and forgiveness that God makes to Israel in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, specifically in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. And I'll, I'll, I'll read it for you now. Here's what God says through the prophet. He says, and, and he's speaking, by the way, to Israel in um, exile in Babylon. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do, do you hear the promise that God is making? It, it, it's, it's a promise to draw near to a people that has rebelled against their God. It's a promise to bless. It's a promise to restore. It's a promise to love. And this same promise, in virtually the same words, is made six different times throughout the book of Ezekiel. It starts in chapter 11 and runs all the way through the end of the book. So Nicodemus would have been very familiar with, with the concept of being born of water and of the Spirit. It would have taken him back to that promise of restoration and forgiveness and renewal and new life. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus would have been longing to hear that promise fulfilled or to see it fulfilled because it talks about the inauguration of God's kingdom on earth, and that's what all of Israel was longing for. So what it, uh, Jesus essentially tells Nicodemus here in verse 5 and following is, I am the one who is here to inaugurate the kingdom of God that you've been waiting for. I am the one. So 
So going back to, a, to our question, though, what does it mean to be born again? Jesus explains this a bit in verses 6 through 8. In verse 6, he tells Nicodemus, and, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, no Nicodemus, no, no, Nicodemus, I don't mean that you need to be born again biologically. And that's a response to the question Nicodemus poses in verse 4. And then in verses 7 and 8, Jesus says something utterly astounding. And again, let me paraphrase what I think he says. He says, don't, don't get stuck, don't get hung up on what I said, that you must be born again. Because here's how it works. You don't contribute anything. Being born again is something that the Holy Spirit makes happen without any effort from you. And, and that's what Jesus means in verse 8 when he talks about the wind blowing where it wishes. And you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. I believe he's talking about the process of being born again. That, that's a sovereign act of God. And in both uh, Hebrew, which is the language that the Old Testament was originally written in, and in Greek, which is the language the New Testament was originally written in, the, it's, it's kind of an interesting fact that uh, in both of those languages, you use the same word for wind and spirit. They're, they're kind of interchangeable. And so here, Jesus is using wordplay to, to talk about the work of the Spirit being like the wind blowing from one place to the next. You don't know where the wind begins, you don't know where it's going, but God does. It's the same way with being born again of the Spirit. It's a sovereign act of God. And here's the way Paul describes the process of being born again in Ephesians chapter 2. It's, it's what I read for the assurance of pardon. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is grace? When, when, when Paul says that it's by grace that we have been saved, what is grace? Grace is unmerited or, or unearned love and favor. And so the notion of salvation, the, the, the notion of being born again as a gift of grace and completely unconnected from our obedience or good works is something that would have been stunning to, Nicod to Nicodemus. Rather. And the reason it would have been stunning to Nicodemus is that all of Nicodemus's life and theological training was built on, do on doing what? On keeping the law. And here Jesus says, that's not the purpose of the law. You can't keep the law well enough to be good to God. The law is only meant to point toward me. I'm the fulfillment of the law. So Nicodemus had a very different functional understanding of how salvation worked. And let me ask you now, what is your functional understanding of how salvation works? Do you, do you struggle sometimes with feeling like you're just not good enough? Like God could never love someone like you because you continue to struggle with doubt? Because you continue to fall into sin. Because you don't uh, do everything that the Lord wants you to do or everything that you feel you want to do. Do you struggle to draw near to the Lord because you, you simply aren't obedient enough? How do you know that God loves you? Is it through your obedience? Does it depend on you being a good enough person? One very functional way that many Christians operate is to assume that they need to be very good, that they essentially need to earn credit with God for their good works. But we're not perfect, of course, and you know that. And so Jesus comes in, and, and he doesn't just add to uh, whatever uh, credit balance we have in our account with God to make it good enough to be acceptable to God. He comes in and he replaces our own record with his perfect record. That's what makes us good to God. 
that we are united to Christ, that when God looks at us, even though we are sinful people who will continue to struggle with sin until we see Jesus, God sees Jesus' perfect record of righteousness and obedience. And so, that's not the way we live much of the time. We, we think that functionally, our salvation in some way depends upon us. And so, how do you know if that's the way you're living? Here are a few diagnostic questions to help you think about that. You could ask yourself, do I sometimes doubt my salvation because of my sin? Do I sometimes want to hide from God because of my disobedience? Do I sometimes do good things to prove to myself or to other people that I'm a child of God? If you answered yes to any of those questions, and I'm forced to admit that I have to answer yes to those questions as well, then it's likely that your functional experience of salvation isn't in line with what the Bible says. And so let's consider Jesus' response to Nicodemus and to us at this point as we transition to the second point, death. In verse 9, Nicodemus struggles to comprehend this utterly new understanding of salvation. And, and keep in mind, again, what this would be like for him. He is he's, he's a learned man. He's devoted his entire life to studying Torah. Other people turn to him for answers about how to interpret God's word and how to live. And, and now his entire worldview is being challenged. And so he asks Jesus in verse 9, how can these things be? He's, he's literally perplexed. And Jesus, in responding, tells him that this is not something that's simple to understand. In verse 10, Jesus tells Nicodemus uh, that even as the, quote, uh, unquote, teacher of Israel, a man whose entire life uh, has been spent studying and teaching God's word, he, he can't understand this concept without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 11, Jesus says that it isn't just Nicholas, uh, Nic I keep saying Nicholas, Nicodemus. The entire Jewish rabbinical tradition doesn't understand. When Jesus says that you do not receive our testimony, the you is plural. He refers here to the entire religious system, the entire Jewish system of belief at that time. They simply reject the notion of grace. That unmerited, unearned, undeserved love and favor that God chooses to show to us. So, Jesus first tells Nicodemus, without, without the Holy Spirit uh, giving you the light bulb and empowering the light bulb and turning the light bulb on in your heart, you can't understand. He goes on to make it as clear as day in verses 13 and 14, in language that Nicodemus can understand. So Jesus says in verse 13 that the Son of Man has descended from heaven. And if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the S and the M in Son of Man are probably capitalized, and that's because here uh, it's, it's a title that's being used to refer to Jesus himself. And it's, it's not a term that simply refers to Jesus in the New Testament. It appears in the Old Testament as well. And Nicodemus would have been familiar with this because in the book of Daniel, one of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel says this uh, from a vision. He says, uh, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days would be referring to God. Uh, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So does that 
Does that kingdom sound familiar? It's, it's God's kingdom that Jesus Christ has inaugurated, correct? So Nicodemus would be connecting what he knew of the prophecy of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 to what Jesus is telling him now on that uh, roof in, in the middle of the night. Here Jesus uses the title Son of Man to refer to himself. And then in verse 14, he uses another Old Testament illustration with which Nicodemus would have been very familiar, the serpent in the wilderness. And this illustration comes from Israel's time in the wilderness, and it's recorded in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. I won't read it, but I'll, I'll tell you what happened briefly. So there were many times while Israel spent those 40 years in the wilderness that God's people rebelled against him and against his servant Moses. Uh, and this was one time that happened not long after uh, God led Israel out of Egypt. Uh, once when the, the people of Israel became impatient and discontent with God and with Moses, God sent what, what are called in Numbers fiery serpents among the people, and they bit many of the people, and many people died. Uh, and so the people cried out. Uh, they said, Lord, we're, we repent, we're sorry, please save us. And so God gave Moses this instruction to make a serpent out of bronze or out of metal and put it on a pole and put it in the midst of the camp so that anyone who was bitten by one of these serpents could look at it and live. So here's a, an image of a fiery serpent set on a pole and put in the midst of the people and anyone who looks on that serpent, strung up on a pole, will live. Does that sound familiar? Jesus says here that death is a necessary part of being born again. He doesn't provide all the details, but he says that he, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on a pole, and that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Well, that story is familiar because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Jesus wasn't lifted up on a pole. He was lifted up on a cross of wood. And it was a cross of suffering and death as well. Because the way in which people believe in Jesus is that we believe that he died in our place as a substitute for our sins. Sure enough, even as the Israelites of Moses' day looked at the bronze serpent on a pole and lived, as those who followed Jesus looked to him on the cross and realized that he died once and for all, for all my sin, that I would be loved and brought into God's family as a true son or daughter, as, as, as we do that, we are cleansed of our fatal disease of sin and live. That's, that's new life. Only as Jesus says here in verse 15, we don't live just to die again. We live eternally. And so, moving on to point three, life. Jesus tells us in verse 16 what God's motivation is for showing grace. It's his love. He says in, in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, this single verse is filled with such a depth of, of mystery, profound mystery, that you and I are going to be spending all of eternity plumbing its depths. We're, we're going to spend all of eternity trying to figure out why God loves his people. Why he would send his son to die in our place. It's something that we can only understand in the most basic of terms right now. But it's something that as we are in the Lord's presence uh, in, in eternity, that will become increasingly uh, evident to us. But I don't believe we'll ever be able to grasp 
the, the fullness of God's love for us. But I invite you to take a moment now and just ponder the implications of what Jesus says in verse 16. God does love the world, but he loves you in particular. Verses 17 through 21 talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. And we could have an entire sermon just on those verses. Not everyone is saved, but if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are. And, and we know, again, uh, it's, it's not part of this passage, but there is plenty in Scripture that says that we don't just cook up in our own strength the idea that we want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's something that's given to us only by grace. It, it's, it's God who gives us the faith to believe this mystery, that we are loved, and that Jesus has atoned for our sin. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that in dying on the cross He completely atoned for your sins, then you know that God loves you by name. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows the, the sinful inclination of your heart. He knows every sin you're going to commit between today and uh, the day you see Him in glory. And He still loves you. Note Jesus' language. He doesn't say that whoever believes in him and has a good record of obedience will have eternal life. He doesn't say that uh, whoever believes in him and doesn't sin from this point on will have eternal life. He says whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He says that the, whole, that the sovereign act of the Holy Spirit calling you to faith and giving you the faith to believe in this wonderful mystery is what gives forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Think back to the question I asked uh, several minutes ago. What is your functional system of salvation? If it's been Jesus plus my obedience lately, I encourage you to let go of that painful and, and binding lie. Don't trust in your own record of obedience. Trust instead in the work of Jesus. In a moment after we sing a hymn, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I think it's appropriate to remember that not one of us, by our own rights, is worthy to uh, approach this table. But it's because God has chosen to love you that we can draw near. The Lord calls us to the table to participate in this meal because it's a demonstration that we believe we share in Jesus' perfect record of obedience to God's law, that we share in his death, that we share in his resurrection. And we acknowledge in taking the, the bread and the juice or wine that Jesus is a part of us and that we are a part of him and of one another. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, it was the Father's will to make Jesus the fullness of sin in order that we would possess the fullness of God's righteousness. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's true for you today. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this profound mystery. Lord, we confess that like Nicodemus, it is hard for us to understand. It's impossible for us to understand, Lord, uh, unless you illuminate uh, your word and write it on our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that as we anticipate coming to the table, and partaking in these elements that we would believe in the faith that you give us, that we are truly loved, that our sin is truly atoned for, and that nothing can ever separate us from your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated as we join together in hymn 134, Alas, and did my Savior bleed.
night in which he was betrayed, our Lord sat down with his friends at the table, and after they had supped, he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this bread is uh, my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. When he did that, he was saying that every time we receive the bread in communion, we're remembering that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for your sins and for mine. And so, as the elders bring the bread to you, hold it in your hand, uh, and then we will take it together once everyone's been served. the body of Christ broken for you. In the same manner, he took the cup. When we give him thanks, he said, this, new, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so in inviting us share in this juice this morning. This juice is not Jesus' blood. The bread was not his body. But we accept by faith that we have received the benefits of his death and resurrection today. That we are forgiven. And so as the elders bring the juice around, please hold on to it until everyone is reserved.
Let's stand and sing together the closing hymn in number 186 and 